This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 93, comic reviews for the week of July 3rd. Welcome to Comic Shenanigans. This is episode 93. This is your host, Adam Chapman. And uh, today's episode is our look at uh, the comics that came out on Wednesday, July 3rd, and the reviews therein of those comics. Um, so thanks for once again for joining us uh, for, the, for Comic Shenanigans. If you're a returning listener, if it's your first episode, welcome to the show. Uh, we... Right now, at least, we're th- every week we take a look at uh, you know comics that were released in the past week. Uh, usually, the episodes go up on Sunday or Monday. Um, up until now, generally speaking, except for I think the first few episodes way back when we started about a year ago or almost a year ago, um, the episodes are generally the reviews episodes are the odd numbered episodes, and then the even numbered episodes are more of a kind of special topic episodes where we'll either look at current movies, we'll talk about hero clicks. Uh, we'll do spotlights and different things in comics, uh, we'll do top five episodes, whatever it might be. It's more of our special kind of topic episode. Um, there are some changes coming to the show soon. Um, as we near episode 100, after episode 100 is when things are going to ch- uh, change a little. Uh, August is the, I guess, the one-year anniversary of uh, the podcast, so celebrating one year of podcasting, which is exciting. And uh, just a few weeks after celebrating the 100th episode, um, right now we're on a pretty rigorous schedule of eight episodes a month, which may not seem that rigorous, but it, it starts to stack up when you're, you're trying to schedule episodes, trying to have time to for the reviews episodes, trying to have time to read all the comics and time to actually review them, etc. So a little bit of that's going to be changing. Uh, I've mentioned on the podcast before, I'm actually moving soon, so it's going to be a little bit of a tumultuous activity in my life, as well as I'm expecting uh, the birth of my first child in uh, in August, so there's a lot going on. Uh, so soon, the uh, we're probably going to be downshifting from eight episodes a month to six. Um, the reviews episodes are important to me, and really, once they're not that week, they start to be much less important, so I'm going to try and continue and have those episodes, but I think they're going to start shrinking. Uh, I try to do a lot of comics. I'm usually talking anywhere from 15 to 25 comics a week. Um, that's probably going to get smaller as I just have less time to talk about things. Uh, I might just pick like 10 books, and those will just be the 10 books I talk about. Um, to be fair, I won't just pick all my favorites. I'll try and pick like a, a wide smattering, so at least the ones we talk about, there's a little bit more variation. Uh, so that that's the plan going forward, and instead of having four of the kind of random topic episodes, it'd probably go down to two a month. Uh, also, one of my regular co-hosts, uh, Nathan Struck, is no longer really able to be on the show as often. Um, he has moved slightly out of the city of Toronto, if you know your geography in Canada, uh, which I don't expect you to, um, he, to a town named Pickering, called Pickering. So uh, there's less opportunities to have the face-to-face conversation. So uh, until I really figure out how to... I, now, I, I've mentioned this before in pre- previous episodes, but if anyone knows of a really good Skype recorder, I would really like to know. There's a lot of places online where they're like, use this, use that, but you never really know, and a lot of them, they end up charging you money in some way, and I just can't, I can't afford to just buy a recorder without knowing if it's actually going to work correctly. Uh, the last one I tried using, um, I think it was like four, maybe three or four reviews episodes ago, uh, I did an episode with AJ Reese, uh, who's a listener on uh, who I guess originally came to the uh, the show from HC Realms, uh, Age of Butters uh, on the Realms, and he we had done an episode, and unfortunately the audio just was out of sync, and and it was using what. 
I'd heard was a pretty good Skype call recorder. So I'm still in the market for looking for something that will actually hold the, um, like actually do a good job of recording the entire conversation. Maybe it's just the connection, but we were issues that we were having, but it kept slicing out pieces of his, uh, his part of the conversation. And then when I tried to slice it all together later, um, it just didn't work at all. Um, so I'm hoping I figure something out at some point because in order to have Nathan Stark on the show, we'll probably have to figure out a way of making the Skype calls work correctly. Anyways, that's enough of that's. I've wasted four minutes of your time, so th- thanks if you've uh, you know uh, been able to hang with me. Uh, so this week uh, I was looking at it just before I was recording the podcast, and I was just reading out all the all the books to my wife, and I was just like, man, it's surprising. This was kind of a weird week. I mean, as I've said in the, the last episode, I think I said I'm going to reevaluate how I've kind of been looking and reviewing comics um and going back to a system i used to use when i used to write uh for a lot of for seven years i wrote reviews for uh comicstream.com which was later cxpulp.com um and for years i wrote there and i, I was used to writing on a, a very specific uh rating ske- uh, schedule or way of doing the ratings which was you know I basically did out of five for art, out of five for story, and then I would just average it out, and that'd be my regular rating. And I just, for some somewhere along the line, when I was doing the podcast, I just stopped doing that. And I realized that if I had been doing that all the way along, a lot of the books might have been a lot lower, and that's a good thing because um, it's more accurate. Because uh, sometimes the things I'd be saying wouldn't quite be matching the numbers. So I'm, this again was based on a suggestion from AJ Reese, um, and I've t- definitely taken that to heart to try and make my show better. Uh, anything I, I mean, if anyone ever has any comments, uh, constructive or you know constructive criticisms, etc., I'm always open to them because I always want to know how to make the show better. Um, if your first comment is "shut up" at the beginning and get right into the comics, okay, I'm getting on, I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> Uh, so the first book we're looking at this week is Action Comics number twenty-two. Uh, this book, um, I don't, I don't know. Superman, it's it's interesting. Like in the New Fifty Two, I just feel like they don't really know what to do with Superman. And having uh, Grant Morrison do his Action Comics run as long as he did didn't help. Um, what I did like about this issue, uh, so it's got Scott Lobdell, who I guess is the new writer on Action Comics. I haven't really been paying attention, but obviously there was Diggle and then, and uh, Daniel kind of doing a storyline together. But it looks like, I guess it's now, it's Lobdell and Kirkham, Tyler Kirkham on art. Um, I will give credit for one thing in particular, and that is that I do like the idea of having a greater connectivity between the Action Comics and Superman book, because there's a lot of references here to Superman, even to ongoing stuff, or stuff that hasn't even quite unfolded yet. And that I really appreciate. I like the idea of actually taking the two Superman books and starting to weave a continuity between them. I don't read the other one, and I don't know why, I just haven't been able to get into it, but I at least appreciate that it's out there. Um, I don't know, the story wasn't bad, it just felt very... It felt very generic. I mean, you have Superman meeting up with this 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 uh, this high knight of the Pax Galactica, which is kind of fun, kind of cool. And you have this girl who really looks like, at the last page, who looks like a real ripoff of Gamora. Like, she's green. She has weird things. Not around her eyes, but instead she has, like, these weird markings around her face. But, I mean, and she's, you know, scantily clad. I mean, the first thing I thought of was, did Gamora jump over into the DC Universe? And then you have these, you know, ongoing tales of Krypton stories at the end. Um, this wasn't bad. I mean, it wasn't the greatest. I mean, I think when I was looking at it, I was like, well, this is kind of a 3 out of 5 and a 3 out of 5. Like, the Kirkham art isn't the strongest I've ever seen from him, but it's not that bad. Lobdell does an okay job at trying to trying to make the story relevant. I mean, I kind of like the villain. Uh, or He's not really a villain per se, but it's more of like a misunderstanding, which is classic in comics. Um, I'm still kind of getting used to this being a slightly harder, harder edge Superman, uh, which, to be honest, is probably a little bit more in fitting with the movie because he's not quite as 
He's not the pre-New 52 charming Superman by any means. Um, but that's okay. Um, you know, this is a new new version of Superman. He's not the Superman that, you know, started in 86 or whatever year the burn came on and relaunched Superman. I mean, he is a different Superman. And he may not be mine. And that's okay. Um, a lot of people, like, they get upset about that kind of stuff. But, like, I remember about a year or two ago, uh, I forget when. It might have been maybe a year and a half ago, I wrote an article for uh, cgmagazine.ca, and I think it was called How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the New 52. Now, I think my stance has changed since then, just because I haven't really enjoyed a lot of the books, but uh, part of what I was saying at the time does kind of hold true in that a lot of my, not misgivings, but uh, my knee-jerk reactions to certain concepts and changing characters, etc., were really predicated on the fact that I really liked what came before, and that this wasn't for me, but uh, trying to come to the realization that, you know, in the 80s, there was probably a lot of people that were like, well, what, what happened to Superman? This isn't my Superman. Um, you know, this isn't this isn't the Jason Todd I knew. Now he's a dick um, and has a different origin. Like, the idea that every generation or so, or maybe a little bit longer than that, but uh, DC, they kind of, they, they do these major revamps, and you have this new version of a character, and that is that, that generation's version of that character. And this happens in different ways. I mean... In the, in the late 80s, early 90s, you had a whole generation growing up with Wally West as their Flash. Now they're buried back, and they're kind of like, wait, what? Like, I preferred Wally. I grew up with Wally uh, as, you know, taking his steps to become the Flash. Or um, in the case of, like, my brother-in-law, like, he kind of first fell in love with Green Lantern through Kyle Rayner, uh, who's a very big departure from the core that, you know, Hal was part of throughout his existence, basically. Um, so it's just an interesting concept of, you know, sometimes you have to let go and, and realize, yeah, this may not be for you anymore, um, but it is for someone, and it's that person, that that person, that's going to be their version of that character to hold true to. Um, the same can be said for the movie Man of Steel. I may not have particularly cared for it, but for a generation, this will be their Superman. Just like uh, Nolan's Batman universe is their version of Batman. Like, I grew up with the Batman Tim Burton uh, movie. Not the greatest movie, and hasn't necessarily aged all that well. But I will always really have a, a soft spot for that movie and really enjoy it, even though there are a lot of things wrong with it. Just because I grew up with it, I have a, a strong attachment to it. That was my Batman growing up. I was, you know, six years old when that movie came out, and I really loved it. So I understand that wanted to hold to something that you're kind of part of. Um, just like some people really love the Adam West Batman because they grew up with that, and that's their thing. Um, anyway, so I gave this book a six out of ten. I'm gonna stop going off my on my on my own there. Uh, next up is Avengers number fifteen. Um, this was okay. This was, I mean, I've loved a lot of what Hickman's been doing on the Avengers, and this did not feel quite as strong as some of his previous issues. Um, when I was doing the breakdown, I think I gave it a four for store and a three and a half for art, so about a seven and a half overall. Um, it's not that it was bad per se. It's just that. There were some issues. There were some uh, things that were going on. I just felt it failed to fully captivate me as much as previous issues have. Uh, just as a quick aside, there might be a little bit of feedback. Not feedback, but a kind of sound in the background. Uh, just where I'm currently in, for lack of a better word, uh, my comic book room. Uh, not where I usually record up. Ep- Actually, well, I sometimes record episodes here for reviews episodes. Anyways, uh, there's plumbing that kind of runs behind my... There's a shower basically that's running right now because my wife is having a, running a bath, so this might come across a little in the recording. Uh, so I'm not really sure how much it's picking up. It was just a quick aside. Um, so yeah, back to Avengers. So I, 
I've really enjoyed some of the previous issues. This was not the best art by Stefano Caselli I've ever seen. It, I don't know, it lacked a little bit of, um, not clarity, but it didn't quite pop in the same way that it usually does. I Maybe it was the, I don't know if it's the same inker he usually has, but there, there was just really something, it, it seemed a little sketchier and a little bit, like, I don't know, it's really hard to say because you could see the building blocks of what makes Caselli a great artist here, but it, the art just didn't seem to quite pop off the page in the same way. Um, and it felt a little, I don't know if it was rushed, but it just it had, definitely had like a bit of a sketchy feel to it. So I thought the story was, you know, pretty good. I mean, as I said, a four out of, uh, four out of five, but, uh, the artwork, it wasn't quite the same. So that's why I gave it a three and a half, but I let, there definitely is something building up and, uh, I'm excited to see what's going to be happening here. Um, no, it's, it's pretty crazy. And, um, I don't know how this is going to work, but, uh, no, the ending is really crazy, and I'm, I, I just, I'm really, the story is, is big, and I really like how some of these characters are being written, um, especially, um, uh, Captain Universe, I think is, like, fascinating, um, and we'll have to see what the resolution of this issue leads to, because we have this, the, um, thing that was on AIM Island escaping and responding to the call, uh, there's a, a lot of Hickman doing what he does best in terms of vague science fiction, and I don't mean that in a bad way at all, just, you get the sense, you get these, these feelings, the sense of something big is, is happening and being orchestrated, but you don't ever get too much, he's just kind of giving you enough to make you feel like the impending doom and something greater, and then he does eventually spool things out too, uh, quite nicely. I felt the same way, it wasn't science fiction so much as a thriller and, and fiction, but uh, his Secret Warriors felt like there was something, like something big was always happening. There was always more going on than you realized, and then by the time it all concluded, you were like, man, that was that was really epic. So he writes uh, really well, and uh, I am still digging this quite a lot. Uh, although, as I said, the art this issue could have been a little bit stronger. Uh, next up is Avengers AI number one. Uh, I gave this a, a four out of ten. I gave it about a. I really struggled. I was going to give it a five and give it like two and a half for each, but for writing and for story. But really, I mean, I think this is more of a four out of ten kind of book. Um, I expected a lot better. First of all, whoever edited this did a terrible job. Um, this is coming out of Age of Ultron. However, and this is what really frustrates me here, is that you have all these kind of timestamps within the actual story, uh, and like you have this event that's happening, uh, in and you know, you have these you know these event these all these uh, ships are attacking a hospital, and it's a job for the Avengers, and then you go back in time and you go you know three days ago, uh, and you're having you know uh, Hank Pym is being interrogated, which is fine whatever. But my problem with some of this is that um, the the timeline doesn't make any sense. Uh, because you have, first of all, it's as if the uh, AI one-shot, or t- Ultron, Age of Ultron 10 AI didn't really happen. And I, I just, I thought this was going to be Hank Pym being cool and being respected instead of being treated like a, a bit of a, uh, I don't know, like a criminal. Uh, plus, this is supposed to take place right after Age of Ultron ended, when technically speaking, Age of Ultron ended in the past, and I, that sounds stupid, but technically speaking, it all ended during Avengers 12.1, because Avengers 12.1 is what basically was what ended up... Anyways, it's too confusing because it's stupid, but the Age of Ultron couldn't have happened without that issue. Um, and then when they basically did all the time travel, they stopped it at that point, but 
if this is supposed to be like right after the Age of Ultron, like the Age of Ultron is over, the Age of uh, AI is now, um, a lot of things actually happened until to get it to the current continuity, and a lot of things Hank Pym has done. I mean, the Avengers Academy um, was going on. Uh, what else? Because, I mean, that was during Fear Itself, which was right after 12.1. Um, There's just so much going on in the Marvel Universe. AVX happened. Hank Pym has been doing a lot, and yet suddenly, like, this... I don't know. It just really bothered me, a lot of this, because this AI... Basically, it's, it, it felt like we, we have taken Hank Pym, and I thought they were going to bring him somewhere in a cool new area. Instead, they're basically saying, uh, he fucked up again. Uh, everything that he... He did something to stop Ultron, and that because he did that, he's now endangered the world. And it just feels like, really? Like, oh, give the fucking guy a break. Um, seeing this weird team together is kind of interesting, but I don't think in, any of them are really being written in any way the way they should be. I just don't think this is how uh, these characters... Like, Vision does not feel like the Vision. His relationship with Hank Pym doesn't feel right. The weird use of a Doombot feels extremely irresponsible and, not to mention, a little bit ridiculous. Uh, Victor Mancha, uh, it's nice to see him, I guess, being used after that pointless AI... Uh, sorry, AU uh, one-shot he starred in. Um, There's just a lot of bullshit here. And it just, it just didn't... The art didn't grab me at all. Um, I expected a lot more from this. I thought it'd be a really good Hank Pym book and him creating a team. Instead, it was just him being shit on again. And, uh, especially starting the thing that basically is being treated as, like, a terrorist almost with, like, his head under a hood. And I'm just like, oh, fuck off. Like, this, this should have been better and this could be better. And they're, and just, again, the edit, editing felt sloppy because it's, like, it's right after the Age of Ultron. But Age of Ultron, technically, you have to jump ahead in time because if you remember Age of Ultron, uh, Carol Danvers was Miss Marvel and not Captain Marvel. And it's just, technically, all that stuff happened so long before AVX. Uh, it, I just found it... and But this clearly takes place here and now because Tony's in space now. Um, which, again, like a lot of things... Anyways, I, I just got frustrated on the timeline. And I know some people are probably like, you know, get over it, don't care so much about the timeline. Well, if you're going to draw attention to it, then, yeah, I'm going to care about the fucking timeline. Like, the editors should be... I don't know. Editors should be doing their job and making sure that things run. I understand you don't want to be a slave to continuity and you want to be able to tell your own stories. But when you specifically mention certain parts of continuity, then you better make it make sense. You better have a consistency. And if you don't, well, now you're not doing your job as an editor. Uh, anyways, this was written by Sam Humphreys. Artwork by Andre Lima. Iruo. I'm just not a huge fan. I gave it a 4 out of 10. and I didn't deserve anything more than that. Uh, Batman Incorporated number 12 I was going back and forth on this one as well I was going to give it um, I don't know, a 6, I'm downgrading it to a 5 I just didn't much care for it um, I'm not even sure what about it didn't work for me although a lot of it didn't uh, artwork by Chris Burnham would generally have enjoyed his artwork here uh, Grant Morrison writing it I just think that for a major epic Batman story having Batman get all like you know, amped up with weird you know, um this felt like something out of the 90s, actually. I, th I think that's what I'm looking for. Because he's got amped up on, like, Mambat serum. And he's got all these, like, kind of weird toys. So he's got, like, armor all over him. So that he can take on, the, basically, the, uh, the 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 messed up clone that, that killed Damien. Uh, it's just ridiculous. Like, it's, 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 it stops being a, a true Batman story when Batman's not really Batman. Um, and... It's just I don't know I I by the by the time it was over I was just like this doesn't feel like Batman uh, this doesn't feel like who he is um, 
it's just a little too aggressive in terms of trying to be very bloody and gross. And then at the very end, the best part of it, though, is having um, the Dark Knight, you know, Batman back at his cave waiting. And Talia shows up and she, you know, goes through, um, the, you know, the regular, the, the, um, the secret entrance in the uh, Wayne Manor. And she's got her sword drawn and she's ready to take on Batman. That part's great. And setting up a big finale. Uh, the rest of it, not so much. Uh, I give it a 5 out of 10. Uh, next up is Batwing number 22, and who would have thought that this would be one of the better books this week? Um, so this is written by uh, Jimmy Palmiotti and Justin Gray, with artwork by uh, Pensica. Um, I Again, I'm not really sure how I feel about this character, Lucas Fox, really being Batwing. That being said, I enjoy this issue a lot. I mean, you have Batwing, or sorry, Lucas, fighting against these uh, intruders to his house, so it turns out they're actually after his dad. Uh, so he's like, you know, I gotta find a way to uh, to help in the you know recovery. And there's a a, weird, a few weird shots of Batman in terms of, like he almost looks like he's smiling in the in the when he's racing in the Batmobile and that part I didn't like. But I do like seeing that Lucas is pretty smart and he's able to get his hands on you know the Batwing armor pretty easily and make some modifications. Like he is a smart guy. He has a you know a little bit of a flirtatious uh, exchange with this woman driving a car so he can get closer to the crime, uh, finding where his dad is. He does a team up with Batman. You get to see kind of what makes them different. Why he's a character that you know his uh, Batman should be able to trust, but at the same time, how he operates in a very different way. Uh, and at the very end, they're going up against a giant mech, basically. Um, I enjoyed it actually, uh, probably more than it, I deserved to, or it, like it it deserved to be enjoyed. I just found I enjoy. I'm actually enjoying the character of Lucas Fox. Um, I'm enjoying their take on him having to deal with this kind of secret identity and that his dad doesn't know that he's Batwing, uh, which is an interesting kind of flip on the secret identity. Like, it's not like he's trying to keep him safe, uh, keep his dad safe or anything like the standard reasons for having a secret identity. It's more that my dad won't let me be a hero. He would probably quit Wayne Enterprises. He would probably not fund Batman. Like, there's a lot of other implications, and I think that is what makes the secret identity work for me. Because I know for a lot of people, secret identities in comic superhero comics these days is very much a passe thing, and sometimes it can be when they when it when they play the old tropes. But I think here it's not because he's trying to keep everyone else safe. It's that he's tr- he he's trying to be able to do what he wants to do, and he can't do it if he's if he's honest with his father. Um, it gives it a different dynamic. And also here you have him thinking that these you know these um, kidnappers are after him, but really they're after his dad. So it's a, a nice kind of twist as well because you forget you know his dad is an extremely important man in the DC universe, especially with Batman Incorporated being an entity. Um, so I give it an eight out of ten. I actually I enjoyed it quite a lot. Uh, next up is uh, Daredevil Dark Knights. I really dug this as well. It felt tonally different than the first issue. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Like it was very similar in, in certain areas, but it did feel like it's its own thing. Uh, it is interesting to note that it very is, very much is in current continuity because the last issue felt like it could have taken place in '90s continuity. The fact that no one's going to know who Daredevil was is the big is the big part. But then there's a lot of things dangled here that make this something that's current, and I can't remember exactly right now. But there was a few pieces of dialogue, etc., that definitely grounded this in the current uh, Marvel Universe, as opposed to the 90s Marvel Universe, but this is, and actually at times, this is a hard comic to read, because you have this one guy who's like, you think Daredevil's gonna come and save him, and he doesn't, and it's like kind of brutal, 
and the idea that you know he's got all these decisions to make as he's in the cold, he's in this blizzard, uh, this worst snowstorm ever, and he has to make a decision on who lives and who dies. And it's kind of brutal, but interesting as well that he has to make this choice, and he decides that he's going to save this girl, but he's pledged to save this uh, you know, heart and bring it back to her. And um, and then finally, like he's able to, he finds you know this helicopter that's gone down, and but then goes into the water. He's able to save one of them, and it's a really cool segment where he's like, he goes back under underwater because he's like, I gotta save the partner. And the other helicopter uh, pilot was like, No, he's dead. He's dead. It's not. And he's like, No, I, I know better because I I, I heard a heart. But then you realize uh, that no, the other guy is dead. But actually, the uh, the heart that they're able to save—it's this you know first time they've ever been able to do this, uh, where the heart's actually still beating, um, which is kind of messed up. But that's why Daredevil heard. Um, and it's just this is really a really good issue, and there's a lot of good stuff happens here. And then by the end, like you're really wondering what's going to happen next. Uh, again, things. I'm sorry. I, as I flip through, I'm seeing things that remind me it's in the current Marvel universe. Um, the fact that you know Shadowland is pretty much still a thing. The fact that uh, Jameson's the mayor, etc. So um, I'm interested to see where this book will go. We have a Daredevil who's very exhausted now and is passed out, um, having you know survived the brutal cold, but for now, but he's got this uh, beating heart and he only has a certain amount of time to bring it home. Uh, sorry, not bring it home, bring it back to this girl, and you have the Kingpin's agents and assassins out to get Daredevil, um, working for the Kingpin, because the very rich man whose daughter is at risk, he's called in a favor with the Kingpin. Um, I really dug this, Lee Weeks has outdone himself, uh, the story's pretty strong, the artwork is fantastic, there's certain shots in here are just gorgeous, um, this is definitely a must-buy for hardcover, I think. It'll look quite nice on my shelf when uh, eventually it gets solicited. So I give that a 9 out of 10. And next up is Detective Comics, uh, number 22. I've really been enjoying this book for the last little while. Uh, John Lehman, I'm enjoying his take on the book. Uh, Jason Fabok is a fantastic artist. Um, he's got a really interesting, like, very detailed take on Batman. Uh, it's very... Uh, there's just so much going on in all his panels. Like, even when it's just the, the raining detail, the detail in all his people, they all pop visually. Like, his his landscapes really have a lot of detail in, his, in them as well. Like, there's things going on in the background. I don't know how much of that is just his art and how much of it is the uh, the colorist as well, but he's got a great take on the art, and Layman's telling a really strong story. I like that there's like this uh, kind of anti-Batman, this Wrath, and uh, he, his, I guess, Robin like character is uh, this character named Scorn who does not survive the end of the issue and then you also have a backup uh, featuring uh, Kirk Langstrom uh, or Man Bat um, and it's written by John Lehman as well with artwork by Andy Clark uh, this has been a really enjoyable book for the last little while um, I like Fabok's uh, artwork as I said and Lehman's telling some great stories um, it, it, I do like that it does feel like this is detective comics. It isn't just Batman. Like There's a little bit more detective work going on here. Um, a lot of writers don't necessarily make that distinction when they write the character. They're just writing the character as Batman and detective comics. Almost as, it's, uh, almost as if writing detective comics itself is incidental. Um, or I guess accidental. I don't know. I may have screwed up the word choice there. Whereas like I remember when I was reading Paul Dini's detective comics, it really felt like it was a detective comic book starring Batman. That's what the book should be at its best. And that's kind of what the vibe I'm getting from uh, from uh, Lehman. And I'm liking it a lot. I give this a 9 out of 10. I would, it was a really great read. I read it a couple times. It was just a lot of fun. Um, I mean, it's it's serious, but I mean, it's it's just it's a very captivating read. Uh, next up is Earth 2, number 14. 
I don't know what it was about this issue. It didn't quite captivate me in the way I was expecting it to. I mean, I'm a big fan of Earth 2. I'm really sad that James Robinson's leaving the book, and this just didn't quite do it for me. Um, I gave it a 7 out of 10. Uh, it is uh, Robinson and uh, Nicholas Scott on artwork. Sorry, Robinson writing it, Nicholas Scott on artwork. The artwork by Nicholas Scott lacked a little bit of uh, luster. I don't know quite what it was, but at times it looked a little rushed and uh, lacking in certain details and... I don't know, it just kind of, it wasn't nearly up to the standards I had come to expect from Nicholas Scott on this book. Uh, the writing there, however, was interesting because you have the idea that you have the Wonders trying to kind of gather to go and take the fight to um, uh, Steppenwolf, which is interesting, and then you have the World Army trying to figure out what to do as well. You have a, a little glimpse of Mr. Terrific being up and around, when I hope we get to see more of that. Um, you have the World Armory, the, sorry, the Sandmen, and the Atom Smasher, or sorry, the Atom, uh, kind of come up against uh, Dr. Fate, Green Lantern, and Flash, which is interesting. I forget where, um, what's her name, Hakuro is and why she isn't here, but I'm hoping she'll get there at some point. Um, I'm interested to see how the, how these, these I mean, it's going to be a big fight, and I don't know how much we're going to get of it before Robinson's gone, but... Uh, it's not a bad issue. I mean, it's enjoyable. Again, the artwork isn't quite up to snuff. I would have given it maybe a four for story, three for art, because um, it wasn't quite Nicholas Scott's best. It was just lacking something. Still a good book, just not up to the standards I'm, I've become accustomed to and spoiled with, I guess. Um, the next up is Green Lantern, number 22. I gave this a five. I did not really care for it. Couldn't wait for it to be over. Uh, Larfley shows up. Okay, I mean, at least he's better written here and better illustrated here than in his own book, because God knows that was a, a clusterfuck of epic proportions. Um, so this is written by Robert Venditti with artwork by Billy Tan. Again, I don't know if Billy Tan's really the right artist for this. I wasn't a huge fan of it. Uh, again, the story had a lot to be desired. They kill off a Star Sapphire for no reason. Um... They have, you know, another Green Lantern is killed because um, he's suckered in by love. I found that kind of uh, pointless, uh, pointless diversion. You have, you know, I, I don't care. I just don't care. I read this and I was just like, what about this is supposed to make me care about what's going on, about these characters, or how, how is leading the core, how these new recruits. Like, I just found it so lacking in, in anything that, that, that was juicy enough to really make me care or latch on to the, like, this new direction. Uh, I just kind of got to the end of the issue. I'm like, well, that's over. And I uh, moved on to something else that hopefully would be a more of a palate cleanser. Uh, so I gave it a 5 out of 10. Unfortunately, the next book I read right after that was just as shitty. And that was uh, Iron Man number 12, uh, which was also being given a 5 out of 10. Um, I probably would give this, I don't know, 4 for art and 1 for story. Uh, Kieran Gillen, I do not give a fuck about what you're doing for, for Iron Man. And I apologize for the language, but I just found it so terrible. Uh, Dale Eaglesham, well, actually, maybe it's one and a half for story and three and a half for art. Not quite up to Dale Eaglesham's, um, you know, his standards. I mean, it was, it was still pretty good artwork, but he's done a lot better and a lot more polished. And maybe it was the inker, maybe it was the colorist. I'm not quite sure, but it kind of lacks something. I just didn't care for this flashback with Howard Stark. I mean, I like Howard Stark being given something more to do. I like that he's an agent of uh, the agent, Ancient Order of the S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, which is from the uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. miniseries, or two miniseries, but only one that ever got completed. Uh, miniseries by Jonathan Hickman, uh, which was a really interesting take on, uh, you know, this, this secret society. And he also had younger versions of Nathaniel Richards and 
Howard Stark working together and kind of being badasses and secret agents. This took that to another extreme, but not an extreme I think I needed. And it had a lot of connectivity with other characters in the Marvel Universe that, again, I don't think we needed to have all connected together. Uh, and the idea, I just don't like the, whenever, like, this felt very Ultimate Iron Man-ish, where they take, Iron Man's just supposed to be a really smart guy who was kind of a shitty person, and they turned it around when he had a, life, a life-altering accident. And then he became, he turned his life around, uh, became, you know, devoted to much bigger, uh, better pursuits, became a hero, etc. I don't like, the, I never liked the idea where he's, something that's been altered in him in some way to give him this kind of destiny, or to give him some sort of superpower. Um, I don't like anything that gives him that, because he's more interesting without it, to be honest. Uh, so I gave this a five because of that. I just did not care for that direction. Um, and then the next next up is uh, Red She-Hulk. Number 67. This is the last issue of this book. I'm quite sad to see it go. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. I know a lot of other people did not. Um, but who cares about those people? Um, I thought it was just a fun romp. And I think at the end of the day, that's all I really expected from this book. Like, I came onto the book never having really read a lot of the last, you know, the Red Hulk book. Um, but I was like, well, you know, it's part of Marvel now. I'll give it a shot. And I found that I really enjoyed the tale of Betty Ross. Betty Ross Banner or Betty Banner, whatever her name is now. And I really liked it once they brought in X-51. And then this issue was kind of fun and, and quirky because you have this alternate reality, the 616.1, which I like. Um, and you have, you know, the idea that Red She-Hulk was caught between these worlds and her real life is seems like a, a not a memory, uh, it seems like a dream to her. Uh, you have a lot of people, unfortunately, on artwork in this book, so you do have a little bit of an inconsistency uh, which is unfortunate uh, because obviously it's written by Jeff Parker, but in terms of the art, you're you're splitting it. Um, of uh, let's see, how many people are writing this? Uh, sorry, illustrating this. I believe there's three main artists. Um, let me just I'm um, just going through here. Well, it's not important. There's uh, Wellington Noves, um, Pagulan, and uh, Pat Olive. Uh, so that's a lot of different cooks in the kitchen. Um, but I did enjoy the story. So you have. X fifty one. He's unable to really assist um, Red She Hulk in her in this alternate reality she finds herself in. Man Thing's trying to help him get out. Um, Tesla gets involved. I I really did kind of I like the ending. It was in, in kind of weird and I was confused at first, but it was interesting. Um, I also like that Red She Hulk gets inducted into the Ancient Order of the Shield. I like the idea that they still exist, um, which makes me sadder that we don't know how that miniseries ever ended. Um, because Jonathan Hickman never finished it. And so, like, we don't even know if they're even supposed to exist in the modern era. Like, we have seen glimpses in, like, uh, the Secret Warriors book by Hickman. There was glimpses of the S.H.I.E.L.D. and, um, and certain, certain characters in, uh, in the Wheels, Wheels Within Wheels storyline, but we never really got a conclusion. So, obviously it's still around. We don't know who's leading them. Uh, Tesla is obviously, as the Night Machine, is still around. Uh, I just wish there was more of a resolution because I really love those characters and those concepts. Uh, and I wish that someday we'd be able to get an omnibus of some some form where we have every appearance that they made or every reference that was made to them, which is never going to happen because it'd be really you'd have a weird smattering of issues because there's a lot of uh, mentions of them in uh, Hickman's Fantastic Four run in the Secret Warriors book, um, obviously in Shield itself, now in this book as well. Uh, also in the New Avengers uh, ABX tie-ins, we had, um, uh, uh, what's his name? Not Newton, not Michelangelo. Ugh, frig, I can't remember his name. 
oh, Leonardo da Vinci showed up. Like, I just wish we'd have all those kind of consolidated in one place, which would be really, really cool. Um, so I gave this book a 7 out of 10. I enjoyed it. It's too bad it's over. Uh, it definitely feels like it's leading up to something, so hopefully Jeff Parker really is going to be writing a new book, a t- I, I, let alone maybe a team book, with this these characters. But unfortunately, I feel like it's doomed to failure because this book got canceled. So why do they think that they can make a team book with the same characters work? Um, I mean, I would totally read it. I mean, I like the idea of having Red She-Hulk and Machine Man and Green She-Hulk and... Um, uh, maybe Man-Thing and the, the Night Machine and the Ancient Order of the Shield. I think that's actually pretty cool. I just don't think it's going to happen, because, or maybe it shouldn't happen, because I feel like it's only going to get six issues before it's cancelled anyway. So why get me into another book that I'm going to really enjoy, only to cancel it? Like, it's just unfortunate. It's, uh, publishing is a weird thing. They keep trying out these, these new concepts, and they might work for a couple years, but then they have to cancel them. Like, Avengers Academy? Loved it. Where did it go? Cancelled. Half of its characters dead or maimed. Um, fans of Runaways or you know uh, those or Avengers Initiative, like these books were cool, and then they they petered out and they got canceled, and then the characters are here and there somewhere, and it's just not the same. Um, you know, they keep trying to in, in, inject new blood, and it never quite holds. But you can have eighteen Avengers books, or if you're on the DC side, you can have eight hundred Batman books. But if you have a couple, you know, Justice League books, they're not going to do as well, even with the name Justice League in there. Um, I do give a lot of credit to... D- this is a, another diversion, so I apologize. I give a lot of credit to DC Comics because, at least at the beginning of the New 52, they had a ton of t- uh, solo books that they actually tried. Now, a lot of them failed, or a bunch of them didn't last very long, or were eventually canceled, but at least they tried. Like, if, if you actually look at, at Marvel's stable, how many solo books do they really have? I mean, there are... Like, you have, like, the Captain America, the Iron Man, the you know, the Thor, but, and you, you have Hulk, um, but you have a lot more of just team books, um, like 800 Avengers books, um, you know, you don't actually have that many solo characters these days, and it's just an interesting thing to think about, whereas I think DC has tried more, maybe failed, but at least they tried more to actually have the solo books around. Uh, anyways, next up is uh, Superior Foes Spider-Man number one. I was really excited about this. I was really excited to see what it was like. I, I like the idea of having a superior month. Um, I hated this book. Um, I think I was going to give it a... I was going to give it a 5. I'm actually going to downgrade that to a, a 4.5. Um, I wasn't a big fan of this. Um, I thought it would be more like Deadly Fools of Spider-Man back in the early 90s. And to an extent, it kind of was. But I felt like instead of being like a fun book focusing on these character on these villains, it just felt like a slap in the face to them. And I guess maybe that was the point that they were going for, but I don't know. I thought it'd be kinda cool. Like when I was in um when I was in university, uh no, I, there was a guest on the show once, his name was Ben Riley. I think it was back in the November episode. Um we we used to talk about if we could write a comic book, what would we write about? And one of the things that he was always huge on and really liked the idea of uh, was to have um, a book about some Spider-Man villains, but not being Spider-Man villains. It's just going about their jobs as petty criminals. And it wouldn't be a comedic, you know, slapstick, not slapstick per se, but like this comedic look down, look, uh, looking down at these characters, but more an in- actual interesting exploration of these characters. And the ones we wanted to use at the time were like Scorpion, uh, Sandman... Uh, Rhino, like some guys just kind of doing their thing, and the idea that, that, that they had private lo- other lives and they weren't just always fighting Spider Man. And that's what I thought maybe this book was going to try and be again. 
uh, kind of like Deadly Foes of Spider-Man. Instead, this just felt like a, like just making fun of Boomerang in a big way. Um, and, again, making a lot of fun of Shocker, which I really hate because I love Shocker as a character. And also making a lot of fun of uh, Speed Demon. I just thought it was... I don't know. I just didn't like it. I didn't like what happened here. There's a sequence in a in a in a pet store where they're there to get food uh, for um, boomerangs because uh, boomerangs in prison. So you have Shocker and Speed Demon go to get some pet food, and while there, Shocker talks to this girl about uh, his dog. He has a kid, and he's asking if maybe she can change the name of the, that she's going to name this dog. And they get to this, you know, stupid argument where, like, who's stupid? And he decides he's going to rob this place, including uh, the the pet food, as well as he's going to she's going to take the dog from this child. And I just felt like very like, ugh, really, like this is what they're doing here. And you have these characters like they're having problems even getting up the stairs. And I, I don't know. I just felt this was really half the time it was in very poor taste. And then you had the Beatles stealing a comic, stealing from a comic book store. And the idea that, you know, they're all kind of working for the, you know, in this case, they're working for the chameleon. Uh, I don't like the chameleon was even here because chameleon, if you're following continuity at all, was, you know, in the, uh, after the ends of the earth, he was uh, on the shield helicarrier. And then he was uh, liberated by Superior Spider-Man and now he's captured by Superior Spider-Man. So I just didn't like how that was kind of happening and how continuity is not really being respected. Again, this is a problem with the editors. Um... I don't know, I just didn't... I thought this would be a lot more fun, and instead, I just felt this was kind of just in bad taste. Uh, I didn't really like the way the characters were written, and I just know I don't feel a need to read more. I don't really feel like I want to read more, because this isn't how I want these characters to be written, or how I want them to act. And it's interesting that three of them have been Thunderbolts before. Anyways, uh, this is written by uh, Spencer. Uh, I thought Nick Spencer's better than this. Uh, Steve Lieber also is better than this. Um, it, this should have been much better than it was, and it wasn't. So I gave it a, a I'm downgrading it officially to a 4.5 out of 10. Uh, next up is Swamp Thing number 22. Um, this would have gotten a higher rating if it hadn't gone the more predictable route it did. It was interesting because you have uh, this Cedar character show up and uh, in this you know small Scotland, Scotland uh, sorry Scottish town, and they used to have this uh, you know they used to mix uh, Scotch and etc and uh they, they can't do that anymore i believe it was scotch anyway uh anyways they may, used to make alcohol now they can't uh they shut down the last bit of business in the area most people have moved away uh except those who have kind of been you know stuck stuck with it um anyways the cedar character he he basically affects this tree and suddenly uh they can have alcohol in this area again which is kind of interesting so swamp thing comes to investigate and then he comes up against constantine uh, constant, and they have an interesting interaction as well. Uh, but then it all kind of goes pear shaped because it turns out that, uh, and this is where I kind of felt it slipping from like an 8.5 to like a 7, if not lower. And I stopped at 7 though. It was that it, then it went very predictable and it was just more violent. And that, you know, and I get the idea that, you know, because even though this guy has good intentions to do good things to um, this town. Uh, you know, basically the idea that kind of magic has a price, so to speak. And so, uh, it ends up kind of affecting everyone and they all kind of become blood, bloodthirsty and, and they're, 
you know, very violent and they're hurting each other. And that part, I just, I, that's where it, it kind of lost me. It's a two-part arc. I'm hoping, I'm hoping for some sort of redemption in the next part. But it just reminded me of at times what doesn't work for me with the current Animal Man Swamp Thing runs is that they kind of uh, they play in the grotesque. The theater, theater of the grotesque is very much heavily uh, featured, and I'm not as big a fan of that because I like the idea of the concepts they're dealing in, but then they go a little bit more grotesque with it, and the artwork especially in these cases, and then I, I just find myself kind of sickened by it, and I don't enjoy it as much. This is very true of Animal Man. Um, sometimes its stories are really interesting, but then it just gets really disgusting. It gets a little too gross. It it just it goes in a, a completely separate direction, which I don't like reading. And it's not really to my taste. It's not something I really want to be reading or I would intentionally seek out normally. Um, so this issue was written by Charles Sule and artwork by Kano. They're a good creative team. Again, I just wish that it hadn't gone quite gone the route it did. Uh, I gave it a 7 out of 10. Uh, next up is Thunderbolts, number 12. This was much better than most issues of Thunderbolts had been. Uh, I was going to give this a 7 out of 10 for uh, but the actual breakdown would have been four and a half for the story and two and a half for the art. Um, I found the story to be actually surprisingly strong. Uh, the idea that Frank Castle, um, you know, he has made it basically his mission. Uh, although I don't know where he has time to do this, but um, actually I should mention the creative team on this on this book has obviously changed. You got Charles Soule writing it, so another book by Soule. Uh, Steve Dillon is back as the artist, which is very unfortunate because I do not like his take on the on uh, on this book or on the Punisher at all. But you have the idea of um, what's his name? Uh, the the brother of Electra is still out there because you know Frank was talking to three weeks earlier before this starts. He was talking to Electra and asking what she did with the body, and she hesitates. And because of that, he basically figures out, wait a minute, there's more to it than than I thought, but she did hesitate, which means she's probably still alive. So he does everything he can to track him down and kill this man. And um, it's really an interesting take on, on Punisher as a character and being very, like, he is about the mission. And uh, what really sold the issue for me is at the very, very end, after he actually kills uh, the Nacho's brother, and uh, he almost, and you got this feeling that like he's with he's with Electra, and he almost kills her too, um, because she lied about the body, and that was enough. And so on this last page, you have them talking. It's very awkward, but it's interesting. You have Electra saying to him, you know, where have you been? He's like working, and then the narration being, she let him live, and then they they get close together, and she's kind of has his hand her hand on his chest and says, fair enough, I'll see you tonight. And he, his narration just saying, I could do it right now right now and then he just has this look in his eye and then he kind of looks away and he says no not tonight and he just walks away and again i'm not a huge fan of dylan's artwork but i found the story there extremely compelling um he's so committed to his principles and the fact that he almost even killed her um i haven't really enjoyed that way ever put punisher and uh, electra together i don't think that's a natural pairing at all again i think i like the versions of punisher being a, a much more older man at times he's a little bit more de-aged but he should be noticeably older than um characters like matt murdoch etc like he should be more in his 40s or well, in some cases early 50s but he should be more of a haggard older uh soldier and uh, i don't like the idea of him being with electra but here it actually worked a great effect and the idea that at the end of the day like the mission comes first um, and he, you know, he, she almost had to die as well because she was almost as much of the problem because she let her brother live. 
and uh, given everything he'd done, uh, her brother had done, he had to die. Fascinating. Uh, again, again, this if I was writing this, rating this purely based on the storytelling in terms of the script, I would give it a nine out of ten because of the shitty ass artwork by Steve Dillon. It gets a seven. Um, but like the man, the, the story blew me away. Uh, next up is Venom number thirty-seven. Uh, it continues to be this book that just kind of does its own thing. Um, it's I, I think I I give it way too much credit. Uh, and I think it probably deserves less than what I give it. I give it about a 7. Um, it's not the greatest story by Colin Bunn. Uh, the artwork isn't that great either by Kim Jacinto with uh, Lee Lowridge on color art. But I kind of like it anyway. It's got a, a, a very different take artistically. Um, the scenes of you know Venom in action as opposed to his you know his regular life very different color palettes being used by Lowridge which is nice uh, very different artistic style in general you have this weird team of like weird knockoff like hero or villain villains based on not on heroes that show up that I think like the Spider-Man costume or the Spider-Man-ish character that shows up here and I'd have to look to be sure but I'm pretty sure he showed up in Infinity War or around that era because um, uh, I remember there was this cover you know what? I'm actually going to pause the podcast to do a little bit of research. I'll be right back. And I'm back, or really, I never really left. Uh, I did some quick research because I thought that the Spider-Man ripoff character looked too familiar, uh, and he was. Uh, he's from Amazing Spider-Man 367 from October 92, so reaching deep in the well, 21 years backwards for this char- these characters. Uh, you have Death Shield, who's the Cap America ripoff. You have Jagged Bow, the um, the Hawkeye ripoff, and the Blood Spider being the uh, Spider-Man ripoff. So they're the ones who show up here. I don't know if they've ever shown up anywhere else in the meantime, but I, I sincerely doubt it. Um, I don't even know if they're really even called by their proper names here. Um, but they're just kind of used as characters that this new Lord Ogre guy has uh, has uh, has uh, hired. Uh, but uh, actually, no, I guess their names are given, or at least Death Shield and Jagged Bow are definitely named. Um but it was really the Spider-Man that was very the memorable one because, I mean, the the original appearance by these characters were penciled by, uh, well, at least the cover that these characters originally showed up in uh, was by uh, Mark Bagley, although he didn't actually do the interiors of issue 367. Um, so that's the only reason I even remember, like, I remember those characters at all because of the Spider-Man one. It was kind of an interesting look. Um, but here you have an interesting take of Venom going up against these these characters that are teaming up, and then going, also going up against Constrictor, and more freaks show up because uh, Lord Ogre is really calling a lot of markers against Venom. Uh, you have Venom teaming up with uh, Katie Kiernan to try and figure out ways of kind of fighting back or knowing who's kind of put out a hit on him. Uh, there's some interesting ideas here, and I like how they're developing uh, the relationship with Venom and Katie Kiernan. Um, I also like just having... I like that they're in Philadelphia and it does feel different than just being in New York. And I'm interested to see who this new uh, jack-o'-lantern is or who it's supposed to be. Um, so, I, I, you know, I give it a 7 out of 10. It's not the best read, but it's definitely not the worst. God knows, it's not that. Um, <laughs> I, there's been a lot worse this week, so uh, for sure. Next up is uh, What If AVX number 1. I was going to give it a 6. I think I'll actually give it a 5. I just... I, I, it bugs me because what ifs used to be first of all it used to be a great series of you know, the watcher would introduce something and it used to be heavy exposition but he would set up the stage and then you'd jump into this new reality um, which I always thought was cool and then it was always kind of modeling but and they were interesting um, what I liked about those were first of all done in ones uh, I liked that they were doing for a long time the uh, one shots 
uh, they would do what if one shots and then they would collect them they would usually do them all one, one time of year and then you'd eventually be able to collect them all in a trade paperback format uh, now instead they're doing what if AVX so they're doing a what if uh, miniseries so it's four issues of basically following one reality which I don't find that nearly as interesting because I feel like it just decompresses the entire experience uh, it's written by Jim, Jimmy Palmiotti uh, you got Jorge Molina on pencils. These are guys who are worth, who are better, better than this gives them. Uh, first of all, I don't like how, and this is going to sound really picky, but like a what if is usually they pick one spot and like one divergent point, and that is where everything changes. Here, it just feels like there's multiple divergences, and it it just doesn't feel as uh, as authentic to being a true what if. Because first of all. Nova's not in space, and he's not the one to bring, you know, herald the arrival of the Phoenix, because back, you know, the whole it's coming thing, he's not the one. Instead, you have the stupid Michael Bendis version of the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, which I know is harsh, but it still bugs me that those are the versions that we're seeing now everywhere, and I miss the the cool versions, the ones that got the Guardians of the Galaxy popular in the first place, were the cool um, uh, Dan Abnett and Andy Landing versions, not these versions with these costumes I don't like, and writing the characters in a specific way I don't enjoy, and this isn't a Star-Lord I like to read, uh, and was they're the ones who get intercepted, they basically get destroyed by the Phoenix, Again, the Phoenix doesn't even seem to really be on a trajectory per se, but then they send you know word basically to uh, Earth um, that you know something's coming, which again it doesn't feel feel as adequate as the original. And so that again, I'm really getting bogged down in details, but it really pissed me off that it couldn't have just been the same. And then you have this space team being sent out to try and intercept the Phoenix Force, just like in the regular Marvel universe. Uh, however, it's a little different in terms of the team. You have, instead, you have you know, Miss Marvel, Thor, and Black Panther being sent out, as well as Nova and the Vision. Now, Nova pisses me off because, again, the Nova didn't exist at that point. So, another divergence that makes this less and less of a pure what if and more of a, a different reality where something similar happened, but it was different because a lot of the preceding elements were different. Uh, that bugs me. And maybe it shouldn't, but it really does. Um, and then the idea here is that once uh, Cap America arrives on Utopia to confront uh, the X-Men and take Hope into custody. They do it a little differently because now instead of Cyclops being the one to kind of go have that conversation, instead it's uh, it's Storm and it's Magneto and they're the ones who are going to, and Namor, and they're the ones who are going to have the conversation. They have a little bit of a, a flare-up. Um, Wolverine basically ends up gutting Storm by accident um, and, and then Magneto destroys a helicarrier. That's the issue. So it just felt like a, they didn't actually develop a lot of the actual story. Like back in the old days, it just felt like so much more happened. Yes, it was compressed. Yes, it was in a lot of exposition. Yes, you had a lot of tight panels. But it just felt like you got more bang for your buck. And instead, here, it just pissed me off more that it didn't do a lot more. It wasn't that different yet. I mean, and I just don't think you need to have four issues to tell a what if. I think the whole point of a what if is that you're, because you're basing it off of. Uh, usually one singular event or like a series of events that are very clear to to, uh, to see the path for, you say this this is different and then you quickly show everything else. Uh, here it just feels like we're doing it all again and I it just feels too soon to be spending four issues on this. Uh, if you are a trade waiter, you know, wait this till this goes into the discount bin because I think they've said that the trade for this is like 20 bucks or something which if you average it out is $5 an issue which is retarded. Uh, I cannot believe that they keep doing this. 
in terms of just really overpricing everything, all their trades these days. Whereas DC seems to have a good, you know, their trade paperbacks are generally twelve ninety nine or thirteen ninety nine, and you get, you know, six or seven issues, which is a lot better deal than what Marvel's been doing. Uh, Marvel's just been killing you. If you've been a fan of trades or even hardcovers, you're just getting murdered. Um, and I feel bad, actually, for uh, traditional LCSs or local comic book stores because they can't match this type of stuff. They can't match the fact that the price is going up to a ridiculous degree. And then uh, a lot of people are starting to go to places, e-retailers like Amazon. And Amazon, it's still high on Amazon, but it's still priced much lower than on a, a regular comic book store. So if you go into a regular comic book store, you're paying an exorbitant amount for you know not a lot of issues. Like a good example... Um, I haven't purchased it because I'm waiting for it to eventually be a uh, paperback trade. Is the first, you know, f- I think five issues of all new X-Men. Um, I'm just checking up here as we speak on Amazon.ca, so it's obviously it's not quite the same as uh, the American prices. But I mean, they list it as the Canadian price being twenty-seven ninety-nine. So if I go into my local comic book store, it'll be twenty-eight dollars to get this hardcover for five issues. That and that's before any taxes are included. Which, if you're from Canada, you'll know the taxes can be a little high, especially in Ontario. It's like thirteen percent. Um, so I mean, that's twenty eight dollars, and you're getting five issues. So you're paying five dollars and sixty cents an issue. Uh, it's four dollars normally. Just go buy the singles. Like it doesn't make sense to buy hardcover. It, they're they are just raping you on the cost. Uh, uh, their discounted price on Amazon.ca, for example, is seventeen fifty five, which is at least better. But again. It's you know three fifty an issue. It's a little bit better than getting in uh, in singles, but again, a lot of places give you discounts. Uh, you don't actually have to pay the the full thing. Like on my my LCS, it you know gives you a twenty percent discount. So if you're buying a book that's you know usually four dollars and you're getting that twenty percent discount, you're you know you're paying three twenty. So you're still paying more than you would. Um, you know, at, at your local comic book shop in terms of buying singles to get this hardcover. So it's just unfortunate that they just they seem to be jacking up the prices more and more. Um, and especially with a lot of these books, like All New X Men, uh, at least up until January. The so by January, I think there'll be three three collect three hardcover collections and not one softcover collection of All New X Men. Uh, Avengers is a book where I just, I mean, I've really been enjoying it. I'd like to be able to put it on my shelf and put it in trade paperback format. And again, I'm not going to get it for a long time because it's not even solicited. Uh, it used to be a few months after the hardcover, you get the softcover. Well, it's I think they've said it's going to be at least eight months, if not more now. Uh, that's what David Gabriel had said on the Marvel Masterworks forums. Uh, it's really unfortunate, especially if you're a big fan of trades. I mean, yes... Obviously, they want to make sure that singles are, you know, their first place to go. And then if they're going to put it in hardcover, they want to make sure that there's a reason to put it out in hardcover and that you're not just going to be able to quickly get it in softcover. They're hoping that you'll cave and get the hardcover. Fine, I'll get the hardcover. Just don't make it so ludicrously priced. If you're going to make it an extremely expensive book, I'm just not going to buy it. It's just going to sit on the shelf. And it's unfortunate because I'll want it, but I just can't. I can't justify paying that much for so few issues. Uh, especially when they put out some trade paperback collections, which are absolutely mammoth for extremely discounted prices. Now, obviously, it's not new material, but you're still getting a lot more for your money. So why don't I just wait? Um, you know, like, I, I usually am not a waiter, but if you're going to just gouge me, then I'm going to have to be. So, uh, that was 5 out of 10 for What If AVX number 1. There's a lot of books I didn't get a chance to touch this week. They include the following. Batman 66 number 1, it was digital only. I just, I don't really have a... 
a really good method to read digital uh, books. I just move my iPod, and that's not really the same as a, as a tablet. Uh, so I haven't had a chance to read that yet. Uh, Deadpool kills Deadpool number one, Dexter number one, Dial H, uh, number fourteen, Emerald City of Oz number one, Ferris number seventeen, Green Arrow number twenty-two, Guardians of Galaxy, Tomorrow's Avengers number one. I don't actually know what exactly that is. Legends of the Dark Knight number ten, Movement number three, Stormwatch twenty-two, Trinity of Sin, Pandora number one, Trinity of Sin, The Phantom Stranger number ten, and X-Men Legacy thirteen. Usually I read all of X-Men Legacy. I just didn't have a chance this week. Uh, so that is the episode. So this has been episode 93 comic reviews for the week of July 3rd. Uh, make sure to stick with us in upcoming episodes. Uh, episode 94, we'll have our spotlight on Monsters University episode where I'll be joined by my lovely co-host Kelly Chapman. Uh, episode 96 will be our spotlight on Green Lantern episode, the Jeff Johns years, probably part one of a multiple series uh, that I'll be doing with my brother-in-law Paul Scores. Uh, the week after that, uh, it'll be a few days late because it usually comes out on Wednesdays, but it'll be a few days late for to coincide with the release of the Wolverine movie. The spotlight on the Wolverine will be our episode 98, and then after that will be the big episode 100, which I'm not really sure what it is yet. Uh, anyways, uh, thanks for joining us. You can always uh, email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com. You can like us on Facebook, or you can post in the HC Realms thread that we post these episodes in. This is Adam Chapman signing off, and we will see you next time.